1: I want to start out tonight by reminding you about our friends at the McLemore, which is a private resort located just south of Chattanooga, high atop Lookout Mountain, Georgia. It's a casual two-hour drive from Atlanta, Nashville, and Birmingham. The existing Highlands course is now ranked in the top 100 courses you can play in the United States by Golf Digest. The 18th hole, as a matter of fact, is ranked in the top 10 finishing holes in the world. A second course, The Outpost, is now under construction, which will open summer of 2024. The Outpost is another Bill and reese Jones design and features a mile and a half of dramatic cliff edge, with every inch of that edge filled with a goffle. A world-class hotel, Cloudland Lookout Mountain Curio Collection by Hilton, will open spring of 2024. Both the course and the hotel have incredible views into historic McLemore Cove, 1,200 feet below you got to see it to believe it, folks. Stay, dine, and play golf above the clouds at Macklemore. Go online to Macklemore.com to book your stay and play package today. Now let's talk grips. I want to tell you about Lampkin grips. Every shot, as you know, has its own unique feel. The trick? Feel comfortable with each one. And comfort is built into the very DNA of Sonar Plus Black Grips. Composed of their Genesis material that provides supreme comfort and durability with their fingerprint technology creates a strong connection and unforgettable touch. The game changes from shot to shot. The feel on your hand shouldn't. Lampkin. Feel is everything. I also want to remind you about the all-new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade. If there's one thing we know golfers want from a driver, it's distance. But there's actually two things we all want. Distance, and let's not forget, forgiveness. That's why TaylorMade designed the Stealth 2 driver with even more carbon for even more forgiveness. To learn more about the new Stealth 2 driver from TaylorMade, visit them online at TaylorMadeGolf.com. All right, now back with me is one of the great golf riders of our time, and that's Ron Syrak. Ron is from Newcastle, Pennsylvania, which is about 50 miles northwest of my hometown of Pittsburgh, right there on the Pennsylvania-Ohio border. He attended Franklin and Marshall College in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where he wrote for the Lancaster Independent Press. His first job in golf was filling the pop cooler at Castle Hills Golf Course in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. You probably know Ron's work as a senior writer for Golf Digest and a regular contributor on the Golf Channel. He was also an executive director for Golf World. Prior to all of that, he worked with the Associated Press for 18 years, the first seven as a supervising news editor before becoming deputy sports editor, and then a writer. He has authored three books, along with PN Nielsen and Lynn Marriott, entitled Every Shot Must Have a Purpose, The Game Before the Game, and Play Your Best Golf Now. He's also written a biography for young people about Greg Norman. In 2015, Ron received the PGA of America Lifetime Achievement Award in Journalism and the Media Excellence Award from the LPGA. He also received the Lincoln Worden Journalism award from the Metropolitan Golf Writers Association, and I am very thrilled that I get the privilege of having him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Ron, thanks for coming back on the show.
0: Wow, Chris, that intro you make me you make me feel as old as I really am. But uh, <laughs> you, know, you also make me feel very lucky that I that I was around at a time to 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 see a couple of generations of really special golfers.
1: No doubt you did. We're going to talk about some of that. Um, but before, Ron, I, I was checking out your website, ronsirac.com. The background picture is a golf course that I believe is around east of Massachusetts. I'm familiar with Salt Pond, but I don't didn't know there was a golf course around that area. What golf course is that?
0: It's not there anymore. It's a ghost golf course. Uh, uh, Cedar Banks Lynx was built in 1925, was there to about 1947. Um, uh, I found a schematic of the golf course. And then I had a friend who's a graphic designer get a, get a Google Earth uh, image of, of what it looks like now and then impose the layout of the golf course uh, uh, on that Google Earth image. It, it must have been a spectacular golf course. Uh, from what I've heard, uh, Bob Jones played there. Francis Wimette played there. Uh, a spectacular piece of property. You can see where uh, some of the holes are still there. Uh, there, there was a, a par three that uh, went over the neck Uh, of an inlet to the salt pond and the guy who built it was uh, such a purist that he didn't he didn't build a bridge across the waterway Uh, he had a raft and a rope and you pulled yourself (laughs) across the water to get to the green
1: that's awesome (laughs) yeah well ron it's open championship week before we talk about that in royal liverpool how great were the shots we saw from rory and robert mcintyre on the last two holes of the scottish open that was a thrilling ending
0: yeah that that final approach shot by McElroy is just it just shows you how good he is I mean I felt for a long time and you know I was at Royal Liverpool in 2014 when he won there. it was one of the great driving weeks I've ever seen anybody have and uh there's no way in my wildest imagination would I think that nine years later we'd still you know he'd have gone nine years without winning a major uh it it, it's just phenomenal I'm a big believer that that when Rory McElroy has his A game, he's the best player in the world, and if there's a weakness in his game, it's that he he doesn't he doesn't know how to win with his B game you know he doesn't struggle really well uh We saw Tiger Woods win with his B game a lot, and uh, you can see Rory when things start going bad for him, you can see it in his body language, he gets down on himself uh, I really thought that that This whole live situation was going to uh, carry him to uh, new heights this year. Uh, uh, and uh, um, um, maybe maybe we're still going to get there. Maybe he goes back to Liverpool, and this is where he breaks that major drought.
1: I interviewed Maureen Medill on Saturday, and she, of course, is rooting for Rory. But she was struggling with whether she wanted him to win the Scottish Open or not, because obviously she wants him to win the Open Championship, and it's hard to win Back to back, can Rory do it? Do you think he can he can take that momentum from the Scottish Open and, and get it over to Royal Liverpool?
0: I do, uh, you know, because I, I I think he is a momentum golfer. You know, he he's the kind of guy that when he gets on a run, when he finds that A game, he is uh, a, a, an awesome uh, uh, attack player out there, and uh, um, and he, he could he could absolutely do it. Uh, you know, the the situation going in right now is is uh he's he's going up against you know probably six eight ten other guys right now who've been playing really steady consistent good golf all year so the, the competition's going to be very tough so who do you like uh you know uh, um you you look at it and uh um scotty scheffler has has seems to like never not be on the leaderboard right i mean right. That's, that that feels like for two years now his name is always there and you see it uh um, uh, strokes gained he's blowing everybody away he's been a little he's been a little shaky with the putter but i think that um british open greens tend to be uh easier to putt than than the greens in the other three majors because they're not as fast they're not as contoured and uh and and scotty scotty might be the guy uh i'm i'm going with a with a long shot favorite here which is uh Tommy Fleetwood, who is, again, somebody who, if you had asked me six, seven years ago, is this guy going to win a major? I would have said, oh, yeah, two or three. And uh, he just hasn't gotten there.
1: Well, I, I love your two picks because those are the two guys I picked. So I'm right with you. Ron, Golf Digest used to do another publication called Golf World. Its last issue was right after Rory won the Open in 2014 at Royal Liverpool. You wrote an article in that edition about Ricky Fowler and his evolution in the game. Earlier that same year, you wrote another article about Ricky and how he didn't want to be remembered as a one-time wonder. Well, here we are, nine years later, and Ricky's game seems to have come full circle. Where do you think Ricky is compared to where he was in 2014?
0: Yeah, in twenty fourteen, I really thought he was turning a corner. He 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 made that great statement about I don't want to be known as uh, you know some, as just another pretty face out here. He started working with Butch Harmon. It it, it seemed he finished in the top five in all four majors in twenty fourteen, and I really thought okay, we got we're going to get onto something special, and then um, he went backwards. But he does seem to be getting getting back into it now. Look, Ricky does absolutely everything right. Except when, you know, he's great with the fans, <laughs> he's great with the media, he's great with the sponsors. Uh he he does everything to promote the game in an absolute perfect way. Uh um it it it's one of those things, you know, the intangible in golf is always the confidence factor. You know, uh among the many things that made Tiger Woods special is in his heart of hearts. Uh he believed he could beat anybody. Uh and uh and I you know, I think that um um, Ricky sometimes doesn't have that belief, and and maybe maybe he could get there. I think he's still young enough to, um, you know, remember, Mickelson didn't win a major until he was 34 years old. Uh, uh, Sergio Garcia, I think, was 37 when he got his one major. So uh, um, there's still time for, for Ricky to do some special things.
1: You do such a phenomenal job covering the LPGA. We're a couple of weeks north of the Women's U.S. Open. Played out at Pebble Beach this year, won by American Allison Corpus. There was a lot of buildup leading to that tournament, not only because of the magnitude of the event, but also because it was played at Pebble Beach. But to me, it felt like the event way surpassed even the expectations we had going in. What did you think?
0: First off, I've never been that cold in July in my life. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was the marine. I was there seven days. The marine layer came in on Monday and it never left. It just hung over that golf course. And uh, uh, living by the water like I do on Cape Cod, I know the difference between 60 degrees when there's sun out and 60 degrees when there's no sun. And it was cold there. Uh, but we saw a week long celebration of women's golf there. It started on Monday. They had a, a past champions dinner. They brought in 39 of the past winners of the U.S. Women's Open, and they treated them like royalty. And it was really special to them to see how this event's grown. Uh, they had brought in Prometica as a presenting sponsor for the tournament and raised the purse to $10 million. Well, they lost that presenting sponsor, Prometica ran into some some financial issues. They lost Prometica, and still they raised the purse to $11 million. And they're going to go to 12 next year. That $2 million went to the winner. Um, uh, all of that was was really uh, um, a huge step forward for women's golf and and i think the most important thing when we see the pga of america with the women's pga championship and the usga with the u.s women's open um, um elevate the venues that the women are playing put them on venues where that where fans have seen the men play major championships that really brings fresh eyes to the women's game you know people who may not necessarily wa- be watch women's golf regularly are going to tune in to see Pebble Beach, or they're going to tune in to say, gee, I wonder how the women are going to handle Pebble Beach. Gee, I wonder how they'll set Pebble Beach up for the women. It brings fresh eyes to the product. It reaches that 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 casual fan, not the hardcore fan out there. And uh, I, I I think financially and I think in terms of venue, it was a huge, huge step forward for women's golf.
1: Let's take that a step further, because when you look at the courses they played on, like Pebble, earlier this year at Baltus Roll, And then sites like Aaron Hills, Riviera, Inverness, and Oakmont over the next five years. That has to mean a lot to the players to be able to play on venues like that. How much of that impact is going to be felt by more sponsors, more money, more sponsors, and more eyes and ears on what the LPGA is doing?
0: Yeah, not just the sponsors, but corporate entertaining. you know, uh, Corporations who aren't necessarily the sponsors, they rent hospitality tents. Uh, and and that they have that build out, and they do their corporate entertaining there, and that that brings more money into the event. It also brings, a, a, again, uh, a newer, fresher, broader, wider audience in, into the women's game. Uh, look, the the LPGA is playing for over a hundred million dollars this year. Uh, Ten years ago, they were playing for about forty million dollars. So it's come a long way. But ironically. Because of the uh, the live situation, because the PGA Tour created those designated events and poured a whole lot more money in there, created all this bonus money, the women who were playing for one-fifth of what the men are playing actually lost ground this year because, because the, the prize money on the men's side went up so dramatically. But the sense that I'm getting is I think the corporate world is waking up to women's golf and realizing there's a huge opportunity for them out there that they can get involved in women's game uh, as a sponsor or as an endorsement partner with players for a fraction of what it costs to get involved in the men's game. And they find out too that uh, the women are, uh, are very, very easy to work with because they want the attention, they want the exposure, they, they want that publicity and uh, they wanna do things to, to uh, uh, enhance the, the, uh, the, the buzz around, around women's game. And I think we're going to see more of that. I think we're going to see more corporations come in and get involved with women's golf. So with
1: all this additional money that is flowing into these purses, whether it's on the PGA Tour, it's on the LPGA Tour, we've started to see some things maybe start to reach a tipping point because we saw AT&T pull out of the Byron Nelson. They're going to focus on the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am and put their money there. Are, are we getting to a point where... It's starting to get a little dangerous. We're getting so much money that now all of a sudden we're starting to tap out sponsors, and people aren't willing to pay the exorbitant prices because look i mean these these elevated events on the p g a tour to your point, they're trying to compete or we're trying to compete with live you know twenty million dollar purses guys winning you know four million dollars that's a lot to keep up with, and it's a lot to squeeze your sponsors for in an economy that hasn't been always great over the last few years. Is it getting a little dangerous with where we're at?
0: Yeah, I'm not entirely sure it's a tipping point, but I think there's a turning point that, that, that we're into right here. And it, it, it involves not just golf, but all sports. Uh, uh, look, the most valuable uh, commodity in the entertainment world right now is live sports. You know, uh, it, it, it's something that, that draws in zillions of eyes. And now because of things like, like gambling, like fantasy leagues, stuff like that, Uh, it's bringing more and more viewers in and it's that TV revenue that that's driving the salaries and the team sports ultimately drives, you know, the reason why uh, the PGA tour plays for so much more prize money than the LPGA does is TV money. Uh, They, they get way more of that, but we could be getting to a point where there is just a lot of competition for those eyes out there right now, you know, uh, uh, this week, the Scottish Open was on, you know, up against Wimbledon tennis, you know, that, I mean, there, there's so much, uh, uh, soccer is becoming a, a, a bigger and bigger sport in the United States. Uh, um, lacrosse was something that didn't even exist when I was in college as as, as a sport. And uh, there, there's so much more competition for the entertainment dollar and for the entertainment viewer out there that it, it's going to create challenges in, in all sports, I think.
1: Ron, changing gears a little bit, you wrote a piece about 15 or 16 years ago about Bob Dylan allegedly being a golfer. And you said allegedly because no one has seen visual proof that he, in fact, does play the game of golf, although Golf Digest once ranked him as the 63rd best among their top 100 musician golfers. And in that article, you wrote, who else would understand the grand aspirations and pitiful sufferings of the human soul? better than one who has tested the metal on a golf course. But did you ever get uh visual uh, evidence on I've Dylan?
0: Ne- I've never gotten visual proof. Uh, uh, he owns a house in Scotland. Uh, and, uh, I remember when, when golf digest ranked him whatever 63rd or whatever it was among musician golfers, I was, I was working for golf digest then. And I didn't believe it. I said, you know, you, you got to prove it to me, dude. I'm not, the, uh, you know, I've seen, I've seen Neil Young play golf. I haven't seen Bob Dylan play it, but, but, uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me because, um, and I talked to uh, uh, Darius Rucker of, uh, of Hootie and the Blowfish about this once. So I said, why do so many musicians really like golf so much that, that, that they want to play it? He said, when you live your life on the road and you live your life with all these spectators, a golf course is a retreat that you can go to. You go out and you play 18 holes and you are by yourself. And Bob Dylan's sort of the ultimate loner. So, I mean, in that regard, uh, I could see him loving being on the golf course because he can be out there and 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 nobody will bother him. But uh, I find it fascinating when Darius Rucker said, that's one of the things that um, a lot of these celebrities get by uh, playing golf, that isolation.
1: Ron, going back a little over 20 years ago, you wrote an article about Ben Hogan right after he passed away. And not enough people know about what Mr. Hogan accomplished over his career, including the amazing year he had in 1953, which included five wins in the six tournaments that he played in, including the Masters, the U.S. Open, and the Open Championship. And he might have won the Grand Slam had the PGA Championship not been a match play event back then. He couldn't even enter due to his leg injury from his 1949 car accident. Playing at match play, all of those holes, all of that time out there was just going to be a little too much for him. But talk about the player Mr Hogan was.
0: Yeah, you know, uh um, he had just figured the game out when he had the car crash. He won uh, uh 1946 uh 13 tournaments then he won seven tournaments 47 10 tournaments in 48. He's the only PGA Tour player to have two double digit win seasons uh, uh and uh, the and the only the only players to have double digit win seasons out there are Byron Nelson, Sam Sneed, Ben Hogan. Uh you know uh, in the wonderful world of social media uh when Tiger was coming back from uh, one of his many injuries and and uh, uh uh people were like sort of passing judgment on him and somebody said on on Twitter uh gee uh um when Ben Hogan was coming back from his car crash uh people didn't beat him up for uh, uh struggling to work his way back and I sort of retweeted out maybe that's because Hogan won six of the first nine majors he played after the car crash, you
1: know?
0: <laughs> and, and, uh, I mean, I, it, it's, uh, he went from 1946 through 1953 with the car crash in between, in, in the middle of that 1949, uh, he played 16 majors and won nine of them, uh, from 1940 to 1960, he never finished out of the top 10 in the U S open. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's just uh, uh, um phenomenally consistent golf. Uh I I I'm with Dan Jenkins in th- saying that um uh, uh you know the only the only people who've won the U.S. Open four times are Bobby Jones, Jack Nicholas, uh, Willie Anderson and uh and uh Ben Hogan. Uh but in 1942 they didn't play the U.S. Open, but the USGA ran an event called the Hail America Open, which was a fundraiser for war bonds. And Hogan played that event and won it. It was set up course was set up by the USGA. The USGA gave the same medal that you give to win to, to winning the that you get for winning the US Open. Uh and it was played on, on USGA uh specs on, on the golf course. And uh I'm with Dan and saying that that Hogan really won is the only person to win the US Open five times.
1: So You talk about uh, arguing with people on Twitter and I get into Twitter wars with people because I, as I said to you off air, I'm a huge Jack Nicholas fan and people say that the tiger is by far and away the greatest golfer ever because Nicholas played against five guys and a bunch of firemen and, and, you know, police officers and Hogan didn't play against anybody, but two or three players that were great. And I, and I, and I take umbrance with that because I go back and I look at, the, the players that Nicholas played in the 60s and 70s, and I look at the guys that were ranked 90th and 100th in, you know, on the money list or whatever, and a lot of those players were great players. I mean, Lanny Watkins was number 100 in the early 70s. I feel like the top 100 players in the world were always as good as the top 100 players in the world right now or in the 2000s. I don't know. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, I think that uh, in the tag, first off, On the greatest of all time arguments uh, i'm not a fan of those arguments because i don't know how you 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 compare different eras you know in my mind we went from bob jones to ben hogan to jack nicholas to tiger woods you know and and i don't know how you separate them out but but i feel that number 156 the last person in the field was probably a better player for tiger woods than it was for jack nicholas but i'm not sure number 10 in the field was a better player for Tiger Woods than it was for Jack. Nicklaus. I think if you look, Jack won 18 majors playing against uh, Gary Player, who won nine, Tom Watson, who won eight, Arnold Palmer, who won seven, Lee Trevino, who won six, throw in a Billy Casper and a Hale Ehrman and a Raywin Floyd and, and a Johnny Miller. Uh, uh, he played against, and I think Trevino is, is, a, is a great example of this. He played against guys who knew Jack was the best, but they weren't afraid of him. You know, I, I, Tiger, I, I saw Tiger in 2000 psychologically destroy several golfers out there. Uh, you know, I think it got into Sergio's head. I think it got into Ernie Els's head. Ernie Els in 2000 finished second in two majors by a total of the U.S. Open and the British Open by a total of 23 strokes. You know, and Tiger just uh, crushed people that way. But Jack went up against people. Uh, um, There's the great Tom Weisskopf quote about Sunday going up against Jack. Weisskopf said. Jack knew he was going to beat you. You knew Jack was going to beat you, and Jack knew that you knew that he was going to beat you, you know. <laughs> and uh and, and this is another thing and I could be wrong about this, but I it, my pers- I don't and I've been following Jack since 1962. Uh I was crushed when he beat my local guy Arnold Palmer in a playoff at Oakmont uh uh in 62. But uh I don't think I ever saw Jack Nicklaus hit a golf ball out of bounds. Um And to me, that's the biggest difference between Tiger Woods and Jack Nicklaus is Jack made so few mistakes on the golf course. He played very, Jack only shot 65 when he needed to shoot 65. Otherwise, he shoots 70 until you went out of your mind. You know, he just went 70 (laughs) to to desk until you went out of your mind. And uh, uh, that was, uh, you know, you look at those 19 second place finishes in majors. If Jack had been a little more aggressive. He could have turned that into, and I always thought, if you had asked me in April of 2008, what are Tiger's final numbers were going to be, I would have said he's going to win 100 PGA Tour events and 25 majors. Well, then there was was back surgeries, knee surgeries, uh, 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 the scandal, all all that stuff, and, and everything fell apart. But I always thought the advantage that Tiger Woods had is he knew that Jack had 18 majors. He knew what the finish line was, what the goal was. If somebody had tapped Jack Nicholas on the shoulder in 1980 and said, "Hey, dude, you need to get to 21 wins in majors, 22 wins in majors," he'd have done it. He'd have figured out how to do it. But he wasn't chasing anybody at that point. You—you uh, uh, you can't. It's not a done deal uh, in in my mind. Um, uh, you know, it's it. Hogan uh, and and again, I'll quote. I'll quote the late great uh, Dan Jenkins on this. Uh, I said to him once. So, are the three best you ever saw Hogan, Nicholas, and Woods? He said, Hogan was the greatest golfer. Nicholas was the greatest winner. Tiger was the greatest escape artist. <laughs> 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 you think of it, the most memorable shots Tiger Woods ever hit are all recovery shots.
1: You know? Right? No, yep. that's genius. Yep. Ron, in February of '98, you wrote an article saying, speaking of Jack Nicholas, that he should be given an exemption to play in the U.S. Open for life. And then that April, He went out and finished sixth in the Masters at age 58, oh, by the way. Talk about why you thought he and Mr. Palmer deserved to play in the open whenever they wanted to.
0: First off, I I was at that 98 Masters, and on Sunday, uh, um, Jack's playing with Ernie Els, and we got to number seven. And Jack made about a 15-foot side-heel birdie putt to pull within two of the lead. And I looked over at Ernie Els, and Els, at that point, essentially quit playing and became a fan. And the hair on my arm was standing on end. I'm thinking, Holy moly, this guy's gonna win this golf tournament. Uh I I think that that what Tiger did an enormous amount for the growth of the game of golf, but the, what Nicholas and Palmer did is um is off the charts and, and uh um, and I, I will say I uh I had the great good privilege of um when arnold palmer went into the western pennsylvania golf association hall of fame they asked me to MC the dinner and what i said that night is if you want to talk about the greatest golfer of all time there's five or six names that are going to be in the conversation but if you want to talk about the most important golfer of all time in my mind there's only one name and that's that's arnold palmer and arnold and jack came around right as tv was discovering live sports and 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 arnold televised perfectly for tv he was muscular he had movie star good looks back in that day he smoked that cigarette and flick it to the side and had that corkscrew finish everything about arnold televised well and then here comes jack along to challenge the king and uh and uh you know for me being a western pennsylvania guy and i told nicholas this once i said jack i'll tell you how hard it was for me to get over the 62 uh 62 open at oakmont when, when you beat Arnold uh, in that playoff is it wasn't until you won the 86 Masters that I was willing to say, all right, this guy's pretty good. You know? But, <laughs> <laughs> but and, and, and I said, Jack, even worse than the fact that you beat Arnold, you were from Ohio, you know, and, and us Western Pennsylvania guys don't take very well to sports stars from Ohio. But um, Jack and Jack and Arnold, um, uh, the timing was perfect. And they came along and Arnold brought the game, out of the private clubs to the masses to the public my dad was a steel worker started playing golf when he was 35 years old in 1955 because of arnold by 1960 every factory in mill in western pennsylvania had a nine hole golf league and it was because arnold brought the game brought the game to the masses and then jack came in and uh and and challenged the king and and that just created in the 60s golf was Golf was uh, uh, had as much buzz as it did in the peak of Taggermania.
1: Ron, you also wrote a book for young adults about Greg Norman. How do you feel about Greg's legacy now versus when you wrote the book?
0: I think running 54 whole tournaments is perfect for him. <laughs> <laughs> He'd have, he'd have about nine majors if they were all 54-hole events. In 1986, he had the Saturday Slam. He was the 54-hole leader at all four majors that year. Uh, uh, you know, uh, it was, uh, I'll say this in all fairness to Greg, there was a period of time in there when uh, we were talking earlier about Scotty Scheffler's name always have been on the leaderboard for the last two years. There's was about a five- or six-year period when Greg Norman was on the leaderboard at every major. Just, he was constantly in it. He didn't. He only won two majors. You ask the casual golf fan who won more majors, Greg Norman or Nick Faldo. A lot of people are going to say Greg Norman, you know. And and Faldo had three times as many majors. Uh, but uh, Greg was, and until Rory McIlroy came along, I thought he was the greatest driver of the golf ball I ever saw, for hit for hitting it long and straight. Uh, but you know, this is I covered it in 1994, 95, the first time that they tried to create sort of a, a made for TV limited field, limited number of events, uh, a tour for just the top players. And I think then they wanted 40 players. And uh, it didn't, uh, didn't get off the ground. And Greg was involved in that. And I always thought that when he got involved in live, part of it was um, was sour grapes from from that time that he was he wanted his mulligan at uh, at taking on the PGA Tour.
1: So where do you think this whole thing with the PIF and the PGA Tour, whether it's a, a merger, a partnership, whatever you want to call it, where do you think this thing ends up?
0: Well, Chris, I think the, the one thing we know for sure is there's a whole lot more that we do, that we don't know than we do know. You know, we, we don't know what this is going to look like next year. I mean, I've heard um, I've heard that Live Golf's going to exist next year. I mean, and uh, I've heard that uh, that it's not going to exist. Will we have a DP World Tour, a PGA Tour, and Live Golf, all three out there? If so, how do they um, uh, peacefully coexist with each other? Uh, We really don't know. Uh, We don't know legally where this is all going to go. Look, Live Golf sued the PGA Tour, saying uh, uh, they filed an antitrust suit against them, saying you have an illegal monopoly on golf. Well, how does Live Tour say that and then not say, okay, the merger of DP World Tour, the PGA Tour, and Live Golf seems to me an even bigger monopoly, you know? <laughs> right. And, and I never understood the argument that the PGA Tour was a monopoly. You know what the PGA Tour is? It's the major leagues, you know? <laughs> the guys who are playing AAA and A AA baseball aren't in AAA and AA because there's a monopoly held by Major League Baseball. They're there because they're not good enough to make it to the, to, to the, uh, to the top tour. So uh, I, I've always felt that, that that's what the PGA Tour was. The, the, the gathering place for the best talent in, in the world in golf. And uh, th- there, was no, there was no monopoly there. But, but we don't know where this is going to go. I think regulatory agencies are far from being done with this. I think that uh, 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 Congress is far from being done with this. And I wouldn't be surprised if some entity brings another antitrust suit uh, uh, against whatever this new entity. We don't even know what it's going to be called. But this new merger of these three things, somebody may bring it and it could be one of the one of the PGA Tour players uh, uh, who, who felt betrayed by uh, by Commissioner Monaghan and, and the PGA Tour by staying loyal to the PGA Tour. Somebody like that may decide that they're going to file an antitrust suit against that. So I, I think it's, it, we're a long way from knowing what it's going to look like and we're a long way from knowing whether it's going to happen.
1: People ask the question, is there a way back for the live tour players to play back on the PGA tour? And, and I, and I sort of get a chuckle out of that now, especially because what's the PGA tour going to find them and suspend them for doing exactly what the PGA tour did, which is taking the money from the PIF. It seems, it seems far-fetched to me that you can suspend or find players for doing exactly what you just did. Do you think that, that uh, that's going to happen? Do you think that uh, there's going to be a way back for those players?
0: Yeah, I think that Commissioner Monahan and a couple of people on the board of directors of the PGA Tour have put themselves into very awkward positions because a lot of the arguments that they were making a year ago, they've now gone a full 180 on. You know, so um, um, I do think there's going to be a way back. At the same time, they have to figure out how they 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 have to figure out how that pathway back doesn't annoy the, the 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 Rory McElroys and the John Roms and the Scotty Schefflers and the Max Homas and all those guys, Patrick Cantley, all the guys who stayed loyal to the PGA tour. And now, you know, a lot of those guys are feeling like they were played. So uh how do you how how do you compensate them? How do you how do you heal their wounds? And how do you, you know, you can't bring these other guys back who 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 left the tour without them paying something and this is another thing too their live contracts we don't know a lot about are they prorated um um were they guaranteed does dustin johnson it, it, was he guaranteed three years worth of money in there or if live goes away does he have to get some of that back is uh you know again there's there's a lot we don't know and and i sort of figured that one of the reasons that that this got settled the way it got settled. And I never thought it was going to get into a courtroom, never. Because I thought the live people didn't want to open their books, but it's looking a whole lot like neither side wanted to open their books to public scrutiny.
1: Yeah. Well, to that end, doesn't that seem suspicious to you? Like what are you hiding?
0: Well, yeah, you know, and, uh, uh, and it could be for the, I mean, I, I honestly think that, that um, the PGA tour, look, PGA Tour this year is going to have a revenue stream of about $1.5 billion. Live Golf has uh, or live the the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia is worth about $670 billion and it's going to be about $700 billion by 2030. So so as a financial uh, uh, battle, PGA Tour was no way they were going to win it. And I think that when they started creating the designated events and and raising some of the bonus money and raising some of the purses for those designated events that they tapped themselves out um they had a they had about a 300 million dollar war chest that was in there they spent 75 million of that 300 million uh to get through COVID. you know uh, uh there were no spectators uh, uh they lost some uh they had to get some tv money and sponsorship money back uh they had to test uh, you know, I mean, they spent they spent millions and millions of dollars uh, on covid testing. And, and so they spent a lot of that money. And I think that they were just tapped out. What surprised me when I heard and I was on the 17th hole of my golf course, when a guy I'm playing with said, hey, live in the PGA Tour just merged. And I was like blown away. Um, I thought there were three issues here. The financial issue, which the PGA Tour had no chance of winning. The moral issue, which is really an individual choice thing. Some people have different feelings about doing business with Saudi Arabia than others. To me, the deciding issue was going to be, is it a compelling entertainment product? Is it good competition, good golf out there? I thought the PGA Tour was winning that battle. They got off to a great start issue. There were so many good tournaments early in the year, so much great golf. and, And there was no buzz. Nobody was watching live. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody was paying any attention to it. But I do think what happened is that the uh, that live just financially bled the PGA Tour dry.
1: Ron, one more before I let you go and switching gears. We're talking Major League Baseball, Minor League Baseball a minute ago. For baseball fans not familiar with Cape Cod, talk about what it's like to go watch the Cape Cod League.
0: Cape Cod League is uh, celebrating its 100th anniversary this year. Uh, It's eight teams out here. And these are the top college players in the country. In, in fact, uh, my, my local team, the Orleans Firebirds, uh, um, uh, got off to a slow start because they had eight of their players were playing in the College World Series and they didn't get here for the beginning of the season. So these are really, really um, uh, top, the top players in the college game. Uh, what Major League Baseball and Major League Scouts love about the Cape Cod League is it's a wood bat league. So they come here, they play, they play with wooden bats. You really get a sense of, of, of what, they, uh, what they can do. There's, uh, they, they find uh, host families for the kids to come in, and they stay with those families uh, during the season, about a 66-game season, I believe it is. And uh, uh, they find them jobs. Uh, uh, they, my grandson was here uh, for, for the last week, and he went every morning. Uh, he went uh, for a two-hour uh, kids camp, In which uh, players from the Orleans Firebirds and some of their coaches would come and and, uh, take the kids through uh, uh, through learning baseball skills, going through drills. So, uh, uh, as a fan event, uh, as you know, it's 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 wood bat, it's amateur golf, it's or amateur golf, amateur baseball, it's uh, free uh and and it, it's it's incredibly intimate when the games are over kids go onto the field and and get players autographs and stuff uh it's it's uh, we've had uh you know Thurman Munson Frank Thomas Carlton Fisk uh uh, uh Nomar Garcia Parra you can go through a gazillion names of uh, big name players uh uh in the major leagues uh, the number i think right now is about 22% of major league baseball played on the Cape Cod League at least one season um, it's a fun thing to watch. Fantastic.
1: Ron, before I let you go, let our listeners know how can they get a copy of all your books and then follow you on your website and on social media.
0: Well, you can go if you go to vision54.com, which is the website that uh P and Nielsen and Lynn Mary, my co-authors, uh have, it's it's it it's their ideas. And uh I've written three books for them on uh on, on the mental side of golf. And they uh uh all 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 P and Lynn did was uh, uh Coach Annika Sorenstam to seventy-two wins and ten major championships. So <laughs> they, they, have, they, have a, they have a pretty good they have a pretty good track record there. But go to you go to go to uh, Vision fifty-four uh, uh, the number 54.com, and and uh, and you'll find a link to uh, to all the books there.
1: Well, Ron, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope we get the privilege of catching up with you again sometime soon.
0: Chris, thanks for having me on, and uh, thanks for all you do for the game. It's all terrific. Right. I appreciate
1: it. Take care, Ron. All the best in your family. We'll catch up soon. Bye-bye. See you, Ron. That is the great Ron Syrak, folks. S-I-R-A-K is the spelling of his last name. ronsyrak.com is his website, at ronsyrak on Twitter. The guy is just phenomenal. He is a walking encyclopedia for so many sports, not just a game of golf, and just a treasure. When you read his stuff, you're just going to fall in love with his style and the things that he writes about. And uh, as you heard, a wonderful man right on top of that. So. Hopefully we get the privilege of catching up again with uh, Ron real soon. And again, the website that he pointed out, if you want to go out and get the copy of the book, vision54.com.
0: Support for Extra 106.3 comes from Natural
1: Body Spa and Skin Remedy, celebrating their 35th anniversary and offering gift cards in-store and online. You can discover Mother's Day and anniversary presents online at Natural Body Spa and Skin Remedy at naturalbody.com.
0: Spring is here and baseball is back. Hi, I'm Mark Beckham with Atlanta Ramjack. We specialize in only foundation repair. What is foundation repair? Foundations sink or settle. These issues need to be addressed. It only becomes more costly the longer you put it off. What is the biggest cause of foundation problem? Either poor construction, inferior site preparation, or weather. Drought causes cracks in your foundations. If you see any signs of foundation issues, please contact us at atlantaramjack.com.